So we're in the, the book of Revelation, uh, chapter 2, if you've got your Bibles with you. If not, there's one in the pew in front of you. And we'll also be putting the text, most of it, up on the screen. Revelation. I am so enjoying this study. I'm just, every time I open up my scriptures to, to prepare my next sermon, I'm just like, <laughs> like a kid in a candy shop. All right, so basically, to remind you, uh, the Apostle John, he's an old man at this point, probably somewhere around 90 years old. He's on the island of Patmos, and he has a vision. And Jesus appears to him in a unique way. His eyes are blazing like fire. His hair is white as wool. He's shining like the sun. Sharp two-edged sword comes out of his mouth. His feet are burnished bronze. And he's standing amongst seven golden candlesticks. And then Jesus begins to talk to him. And Jesus tells him he wants him to write to seven key congregations in Asia Minor. Today, that would be Turkey. And he says, this is exactly what I want you to write to them. And now we're at the third congregation, or the third lesson anyway, and the congregation is in the city of Pergamum. And this is what he says in verse 12. To the angel, or to the ambassador of the church in Pergamum, write, these are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city, where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. You have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and by committing sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore. Otherwise, I will soon come to you, and I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it. All right, we're going to look at some of that in more detail, but I want to introduce you to the city of Pergamum first so you understand the context that the letter was written to. There were things going on that play into this story. So let me give you a bird's-eye view of Pergamum. It was one of the chief cities in all of Asia Minor in those days. It was, uh, you know, had hundreds of thousands of people in it. It was a cosmopolitan city. It was prestigious. It had one of the biggest libraries in the world there. Alexandria, Egypt had the biggest library. This was the second biggest library. It had at least 200,000 books. Now, you've got to understand, back in those days, less than 10% of the population could even read. So to have a library in a city with 200,000 scrolls or books in it, this was, you know, if you were anybody educated, you wanted to visit Pergamum. There was reason to go there. Mark Antony, by the way, you know the famous Mark Antony and Cleopatra? He gifted that library to Cleopatra. That's where that came from. And it wasn't that long before the days of the Apostle John, only a couple hundred years at most. Now, they had all these books. I imagine they were making some books themselves. But they ran out of papyrus. Um, papyrus is, is basically paper made out of reeds. And all that came from Egypt, Alexandria, the biggest library. But when they had a shortage of papyrus, they had to come up with something new to write on. So they invented something in Pergamum called Pergaminus, which in English is the word parchment. So parchment was invented in Pergamum, 
And yet we call it the city of Pergamum. We should just call it the city of parchment. To the representative in the church of parchment writes. Same word. Famous city. Now, in this city, at least twice in this letter, he says, Satan lives there. Whoa. It's not said that about anywhere else in the Bible. Why in the world does it say Satan lives in Pergamum? I'm sure you know this, but Satan doesn't live everywhere. God is everywhere. Satan is not. He's got minions, and they're not little yellow guys with one eye. <laughs> they're much meaner than that. But there's something going on in Pergamum where Jesus says Satan lives there. How would you like to have a church in the city where Satan lives? I, you know, I've got mixed feelings about that. I'm like, yeah, bring it on. Storm the gates. And on the other hand, I'm thinking, no, I don't want to be anywhere near where Satan lives. I'm moving. It could not have been comfortable. And now Bible scholars are trying to figure out what, why, why did Jesus say that? What does that mean? And here's some of the theories on that. First of all, this isn't a theory. This is a fact. They had a temple there to the emperor. So emperor worship was big there. And people wonder if that's just kind of a, a metaphor for emperor worship. Could be. I don't know. I actually uh, went to this place where the emperor was worshipped. And it was nice to see its ruins. And even to see the statue that was falling apart and nothing left to it was pretty cool. I took that picture. I was like, yeah, emperor, some god you turned out to be. Also, Zeus was worshipped there. In this next picture, this is a tree growing in the courtyard of the Timonos where Zeus was worshipped. Timonos means paradise. In the courtyard, they called it a paradise. And um, I just think it's cool, you know? Nothing left but a tree growing out of the dirt. Zeus was the chief of the gods, as you know. So I can see how somebody could think of he might be equivalent to Satan because they're all false gods and they're all demon-inspired. I don't know. There's another god worshipped there, a very famous god, called Asclepius. This god is so famous, he impacts our culture to this very day. Zeus really doesn't, but Asclepius does. Asclepius was the god of medicine and of healing. Um, he's also the son of Apollo. Apollo and Asclepius were both called the healer. Now, this phony god, Asclepius... Um, being the god of medicine and healing, he had two daughters. One was called Hygieia. Sound familiar? Like the word hygiene. That's where we get the word to this very day. And she was the goddess of cleanliness and sanitation. So if you're a sanitation worker, that's who you want to put on your dashboard. No, just kidding. <laughs> the other daughter was the, the goddess Panacea. And she was the goddess of universal healing or universal remedy. Interesting. How many of you have ever heard of the Hippocratic Oath that doctors take? Can I see your hands? Okay, most of you. Before you become a doctor, they give you this oath to read that basically says you're going to take care of people and not harm people. You dedicate your life to doing no harm. But the original Hippocratic Oath started out like this. I swear by Apollo the physician and by Asclepius and by Hygieia and by Panacea and by all the gods dot, dot, I'm telling you, these pagan religions, Hygieia, Panacea, 
Asclepius. You saw the snake thing on the last picture. He was holding a snake. It's a symbol of universal healing, even to this very day. I've got another picture for you. I'll show you in a couple moments. So Asclepius, his temple was called an Asclepion. Today, the closest thing we have to an Asclepion is a hospital. So you went in there to worship Asclepius, but the priests of Asclepius were also the chief doctors of the day. So imagine the difficulty. You become a believer. You're no longer an idolater. And you get really sick, maybe even break your arm. Do you go to the hospital? Where Asclepius is worshipped and you got to make an offering to Asclepius before they'll work on you? And this wasn't just any hospital. This one in Pergamum was the chief hospital in the entire Roman Empire. This was the Mayo Clinic of their day. If you were sick anywhere in the empire and you could afford it, you went to Pergamum. Because that's where the biggest hospital was. Galen, the, most, the second most famous physician in all of human history, next to Hippocrates, Galen was educated in that hospital. It was big time stuff. And so the... Um, Asclepian, the temple, was expanded to this big healing spa. You've got, it, it was weird. Um, in this spa, on the stairs going down to the subterranean levels, there's a little crack for water to run down. So there was, it was always humid because there was water actually live in the hospital. And um, it also made the sound of trinkling. And some people say maybe even the sound of hissing because of the snake. They had snakes slithering on the floor of the Asclepian. Imagine going to St. Joe's today with a broken arm. Excuse me, excuse me, excuse me. Snakes everywhere because snakes represent healing. And then they say, oh, you got to stay overnight. With the snakes? Oh, yeah, with the snakes. Ew. So on one hand, these guys were really brilliant. I mean, their hospitals were actually good. They were educated, knowledgeable people. They knew how to heal people. We read some of their writings. That's the water going down the stairs I was telling you about. We read uh, some of the writings of these doctors, and they would say things like, okay, you need a better diet, more fresh fruits and vegetables, less fat, lay off on the wine, um, moderation in all things, and increase your exercise. Now, isn't that exactly what you'd hear from a doctor today? Exactly. They were highly educated. They knew what they were about. Um... I got that symbol I was telling you about. I saw it on a, a van, just a medical van, just not too long ago. I mean, an ambulance drove by me. I was like, every time I see it now, I know, hey, this, that staff is Asclepius' staff. The snakes are the snakes. Now, we don't worship them, but I'm just letting you know that culture from way back then has impacted us even to this very day. So they had the cool library. They had Zeus worship, they had Asclepius worship, they had emperor worship. They had that awesome uh, hospital. And then there was a, a pastor there named Antipas. Verse 13 says this, Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city, where Satan lives. There's some significance archaeologically and historically, to this verse. Antipas is spoken of in the past tense. Historically, we believe he died in 92 AD. So if that's the case, then we know the book of Revelation was written after 92 AD. The Apostle John wrote it 
And he would have been around 90 years old at this time, so it couldn't have been much longer that this book was written. But here's the thing. Back before they knew when Antipas died, and we didn't know archaeology and history like we do today, one of the most common thoughts on the book of Revelation was that the whole thing was fulfilled in the first century. That all the horrors and the trials and the tribulation was all about what Israel was going to suffer with the coming of the Romans and the destruction of the temple. And that was the prevailing thought. But then after we dug up a little more evidence and a little more history, we realized, wait a minute, the temple was destroyed in 70 AD. Revelation was written 20 to 25 years after that. So there's no way this book was supposed to have been fulfilled 25 years before it was even written. It's written as futuristic events. So that, for those who are open-minded, helped us to understand, no, this book is about the future. It's not about the past. Antipas was the first bishop of Pergamum. Bishop is just like chief uh, head, head pastor of the region, uh, lead pastor, senior pastor. Uh, he was appointed and ordained by John the Apostle. So John's writing about the martyrdom of one of his disciples. That couldn't have been easy to write down. But Jesus said this, You remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, even when Antipas was killed. Go Pergamum. Right in the face of death, you are still true to my name. You didn't turn from me. Good for you. Pergamum, you done right. But there's pros and there's cons. That's what you're doing where I keep with it. Before I go to the um, cons, I've got a picture here of the Red Basilica. This is an archaeological discovery. That's where the pastor was actually murdered. That is called the Red Basilica. It was the temple of Serapis, who I'll talk about in just a moment. Um, but it then became a church which is pretty cool. It went from a place that killed a pastor to a place that had pastors and honored pastors. And I, I really love that about history and what God did there. So there was this angry mob of Serapis worshipers that seized the pastor and burnt him alive inside a brazen bull that would have looked something like this. It was probably a giant incense bull, and it was hot, and they threw him in there. I mean, it's just evil what these people did. Serapis was a famous religion for a short time. It was a combination. Serapis was a combination of Osiris, whom you probably heard of from ancient Egypt, Osiris, and the bull god Apis, and that's why we see the bull there. But when they put Apis and Osiris together, they got Serapis. And the Egyptians, they're all right with worshiping things that look like cows, but the Romans and the Greeks, they like worshiping things that look like people. So they changed Serapis to look like this. In some places he looked like a cow, in some places he looked like, you know, the Greek guy with the long flowing locks and a bowl on his head. I don't know about the bowl. I forgot about what that's for. I read, but now I don't remember. It's interesting how in Egypt they worshiped cows. Um, it's not like they thought the cows were divine in and of themselves. They thought the divinity inhabited the cow, kind of like, you know, possessed cow. In our culture, we've heard of holy cow, but we've never heard of possessed cow. So this is just the opposite kind of cow. I don't understand what it is with worshiping animals. It's been going on in human history for like ever. When the Jews left Egypt, 
Moses went up onto Mount Sinai and he was gone for 40 days and the children of Israel made a cow and started worshiping it. It's like, uh, Moses is gone, let's go back to what we know. And then God, after hundreds of years, finally told the Israelites, okay, we're done with idolatry and he destroyed the two nations. And when Israel's, the Israelites came back, they were done with idolatry. But the Gentiles still weren't done with idolatry. And here we are in the first century, and they're still worshiping a cow from Egypt. It, like it never changes. All right, verse 14. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. You have people there, so here's the cons. You have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and committing sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Um, I've talked to, to you about the Nicolaitans in the past. Um, if you didn't get that lesson and you want it, you can order it. I want to talk to you about Balaam and Balak right now. But before I do, I want to give you, some, uh, uh, I don't know, it's not advice. It's information that a friend gave me that I don't think I'll ever forget. Older gentleman, man of God, he said, Steve, with men, there's usually three problems. Almost always. Women, money, or pride. Almost any problem a man has with God, with spirituality, is going to be wrapped up in one of those three, one of those three things. And I thought on it. I said, you know, that's, that's pretty biblical. I'm thinking about the verses and stuff. I said, I like that. It's, it's simple. I'm going to keep that up here. Now, that's a guy to a guy. Well, what would a woman tell a woman? I'm thinking it probably, and I don't know. Some of you mature women can come up and tell me what women usually struggle with. But I'm thinking it's probably three things. Men, money, and pride. Just, I'm just going to guess, but that's what I think. So he said that you have in this in your church community, people who follow the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block in front of the children of Israel. What's that all about? Well, let me tell you. Children of Israel had left Egypt. We got the cow thing behind us. God's blessing us. We're walking through the wilderness on the way to the promised land. And all the nations that come against us, we destroy. And God told us to destroy the seven key nations in the promised land we were inhabiting. Well, the, uh, I think the, they were the Moabites or the Midianites. I don't remember. Uh, the king, his name was Balak. And he said, we've got a problem. These guys are unstoppable. What are we going to do? I know what we'll do. We'll hire the prophet Balaam to curse the Jews. And if he curses them, then they can't beat us in battle and we'll be fine. So he sends a bunch of rep representatives to this prophet named Balaam. And Balaam says, I don't know if I can go with you. I'll have to ask God. If God says I can go, I'll go. And if God says no, it's no. Because whatever God says, that's what I'll do. So he prays to God and says, God, there's these people called Israel. They're out of Egypt. And Balak wants me to curse them. Can I curse them? And God says, no. No, you cannot. So Balak, Balaam gets up, tells the ambassadors, can't do it. God said no. Well, Balaam entices him. A Balak entices him with lots of money. He says, if you come, I will make you rich. And so Balaam says, let me talk to God again. So he prays to God, and God says, go ahead. <laughs> and so he gets up on his donkey, all fat and happy, because he's going to be rich. 
And next thing you know it, the donkey rams him up against a wall, crushes his foot. He smacks the donkey, stupid donkey, go straight. And then the donkey rams him up against some vines. And the donkey just stops. And so he gets off and he starts beating on the donkey. And the donkey says, why are you beating me? And Balaam says, because you crushed my foot. You ran me into the wall and you won't go where I tell you to go. People are like, did a donkey really talk? And I'm thinking, did a guy really talk back? (laughs) That's the part of the story that freaks me out. I'm telling you, if I see a donkey talking, I'm out of there. I am so gone. Right to the shrink. But he's having a conversation with a donkey. You tell me which one is dumb. So why are you beating me? He says, because you, because you. And then God opens his eyes and he sees an angel of God standing there with a sword. And he was ready to kill Balaam because Balaam wanted to go against God's will and curse the children of Israel. The dumb donkey saved his life. Guess what Balaam does? He says, thank you, God, for two lessons. I'm going home now. Not. He gets back on the donkey and goes back to Balak. What an idiot. He was a prophet for hire. He didn't care about God. He cared about the money. There's a verse in the New Testament that tells pastors, don't be a pastor for the money. So this was a prophet for profit. He's on it. Yeah, I know, right? (laughs) Groan. (laughs) So he's on his way to curse Israel. And he tells Balak again, I am not capable of doing anything God won't let me do. I can only say what God will have me say. And so he starts to pronounce a curse over Israel, but it comes out a blessing. Now, Balak is ticked off. I hired you to curse them, and now you're blessing them. I told you from day one I can only do what God has me do. He said, well, come over here. Let's try this. Maybe you can curse them from this mountain instead. People don't understand God. Uh, Maybe he's strong on this mountain, but not that mountain. That's how their gods were. But that's not how our God is. God owns all the mountains. God made all the mountains anyway. Three times he tries to get him to curse Israel, and three times he blesses Israel. Balak is so mad. He is so angry. But what can he do? But Balaam says, listen, I told you from the beginning I could only do what God would let me do. But I know how you can defeat these people. I know their Achilles heel. Women. Here's what you need to do. Take your prettiest women and send them into their camp. The men will go, and they'll want to marry them, even though they're not allowed to, they will. And then have the women introduce these guys to their worship. And that will totally, totally defile and ruin them. The sin of Balaam was that. That sin stuck with the children of Israel all the way to the dispersion of of Babylon. It stuck with them for the rest of their history. It was their ultimate undoing. They were destroyed because of idolatry. So Israel came out of the dispersion idolatry free, but the Gentiles in Pergamum are still doing it. Now, most of the churches back in those days were mixed of Jews and Gentiles. So he says, there are some there who are doing this. I wouldn't be surprised if some of them were Jews too. And Jesus is saying, those of you who haven't denied me in the face of Antipas' death, good on you. But the rest of you who are doing this, repent or I'm going to come get you. Verse 16. 
I'm skipping a verse for those of you running the slides, running to verse 16. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. The sword of his mouth. You remember Balaam? The angel had the sword, and he was ready to kill him. In the vision, Jesus has the sharp sword coming out of his mouth, and it just so happens to be that that he's using to threaten the people from Pergamum with. Verse 12 said, To the angel in the church in Pergamum write, These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. See that sword up there? That is the most significant sword in human history. Not that very one, but that style. That's the type of sword the Romans carried. It's called a gladius. And the Romans had the biggest, most awesome empire in human history. They were vicious, they were tough, and they conquered the world, and that was the weapon that the footmen, the soldiers, wore. It's significant, though, for a couple of reasons. Remember, it's called the gladius. Sounds like the word gladiator, right? Yeah, because that's what the gladiators used, the gladius. Pergamum was famous for a few things. Their hospital, their library, they were famous for something else, too. The provincial governor was in Pergamum. That was the area where the guy who had the right over life and death lived. The governor could say who was executed and who was not executed. That right, which Pergamum was famous for, is called the Ius Gladii, or Gladiae. Gladiae. Gladius. The same word. So what's going on here, Jesus knowing the fame of Pergamum and the history of their right of the gladius tells them, if you don't straighten up, my gladius is coming. You respect a gladius, you're going to be respected. I'll show you a gladius. Out of his mouth comes a sharp two-edged sword, and he tells them to repent. All right, verse 17, back to the good news. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes... I'll give some of the hidden manna. I'll also give him a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it. All right, so I looked up this white stone. I've, I've done it in the past. What, what's that mean he's going to get a white stone? Well, let me tell you some of the things I learned about white stones in this culture. Got that picture up there? That's a white stone. I always thought of like a little rock you could stick in your pocket. I never thought of something more like a monument, but that's made out of white stone. When you went to the Asclepian and you got healed, you made an offering, you got healed, then you, led a you left a dedicatory marker that described your healing on a white stone. So you can guess what this guy was healed of. This says a cure for a bad leg. So that's one way that white stones were used in that culture. In the uh, country of Thrace, white stones were used to mark good days. In the ancient world, if you won the Olympic Games, each champion was given a white stone. Not a gold medal, but a white stone. And then when he went back to his hometown, that white stone was like a visa card with no limit for the rest of his life. Not that every shop would honor it, but the city would make sure that his food and his housing were free for the rest of his life. That's a pretty cool white stone. And it had his name on it. 
a white stone with his name on it. Revelation said, I will give him a white stone with his name on it. There are additional uses for white stones. Um, A judge could use a black or a white stone to show guilt or innocence. So white stones demonstrated purity or innocence. White stones were also like, I don't even know what word to use. Let's just say you're at war with another kingdom and you're one of their, you're a spy and you want to go home. Halt, who goes there? It's me, Fernando. You're not coming in. Well, I don't know who you are. Dude, I got the white stone. Okay, Fernando, you can come in. It was like proof of your loyalty and your citizenship and your trustworthiness. A white stone said that you were a citizen of that kingdom and that you could be trusted. So Jesus says to those who overcome, he'll be given a white stone. What's it mean? Well, everything I just shared with you seems to fit. I know that in the eternal state, we're never going to have sickness. We're going to be cured from all of our diseases. I know that we're going to be citizens of heaven. I know that he's going to provide us with food and shelter for all of eternity. I know we're going to be pronounced innocent. And I know they're all going to be good days. I think that's pretty cool. We're going to get the covenant proof of shelter and innocence and provision and purity and healing as a promise from Jesus himself. So, when John wrote to the church at Pergamum, there are those walking with Jesus and those who weren't. I bet you it's the same in every church today, probably through every church in human history. But you notice what Jesus didn't do He didn't come right away and destroy them. He said, for those of you who aren't walking with me, I'm giving you a warning, repent, or I will come. And he spoke only against them, not against the whole church. I suppose that that warning could apply to us today. You know, for those of you who aren't walking with Jesus, repent. What does repent mean? Three things. Stop doing evil. Start doing good. And turn back to God. It's pretty simple. I don't know what's going on in your life. I just know that if Jesus can warn churches to straighten up, it's probably a good idea if we take some of that to heart. And there's three things this morning that I want you to be most aware of in your walk with Jesus. Money, pride, and the opposite sex. Please join me in prayer. Lord God, thank you for the lesson to the church at Pergamum. Thank you for the encouragement that we who overcome will receive a white stone. And thank you also for the warning that all of us might become overcomers and none of us need perish or be judged. I pray, Lord, that you would examine our hearts. And we already know you know what's in our hearts. You're not the problem, we are. So I pray that you would show us our own hearts and that you would soften our spirits so that we might see where we fall short and we might repent of our wrongdoings. Open our eyes, for it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.